0: Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. As we continue to march through this book, remind you that we are in a section that runs from chapters 11 to 14 that all deal with the, the gathering of the local church. And so from chapters 11 to 14, it deals with things like men and women in the gathering, uh, the Lord's Supper, uh, spiritual gifts, love, but, but all kind of having to do with how we treat one another, respond to one another, worship together. It's a a section dealing with the gathering. And so I'm going to read this now, chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 17 and on to the end of the chapter, and then we'll do a bit of an introduction. So picking up with verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly... We would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I will address when I come. It's a passage that deals with the, the misuse of the Lord's Supper. I'm going to give you a little scenario to maybe help you kind of picture why this is a a big deal, what's happening here. Imagine that you show up to a Thanksgiving meal and instead of gratitude and good food, they decide to go around the table and everybody share what they're disappointed about, what they want to complain about. And, and, and And it's intentional. They decide that this is a, a time for the airing of grievances rather than the airing of gratitude. So one after another, they list off what they're disappointed about from the past year, who they're bitter against, ways people have let them down, and not with like a redemptive turn of like, yeah, this was hard, but the Lord, no, they're just complaining. What would you conclude? You'd probably think you have missed the point of thanksgiving right we're to give thanks and you're doing the opposite that's what's happening here they're taking the Lord's Supper this this memorial meal that is meant to picture our unity with one another as we're unified with Christ and they're making it a dividing point among the body something that's meant to unify they're dividing over and they're dividing in their practice of it and so there are strong words of warning here. While we may not be guilty of the exact same misuse as we walk through this, there is a correction and a warning here about the Lord's Supper that I think is helpful for us to hear. And along the way as we walk through it, we might see some answers to some questions that you might have. We, we partake of the Lord's Supper here the first Sunday of each month, uh, so in God's providence, it happens to fall on the Sunday we're preaching on this. I'd like to say that I masterminded that. I did not, but I'm sure glad that it works out that way. Some might partake more often, uh, some less. But there's still the questions of what does it mean, this act that we do? Maybe you're a kid and you've, you've been here Sunday after Sunday, but you're still kind of wondering, why do we, why do, we do this with the bread and the cup? Hopefully we'll see some answers too as we, as we go through this. We'll see this in three parts and then some application. The first has to do with the way that they were distorting the Lord's Supper. Distorting the Lord's Supper and their misuse of it. Notice in verse 17 it says, I do not praise you for this, for you come together not for the better but for the worse. The way they're practicing this is actually harmful, not just neutral. But but I want you to notice, even before we look at the correction and the warning, that there's a repeated phrase through here that we ought not to skip over. And it's the fact that they are coming together. Verse 17, they're coming together. Verse 18, they come together. Verse 20, they meet together. Verse 33, they come together. Verse 34, they, they come together. We know that being a Christian is more than just coming together with other Christians on a Sunday morning. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. It's an individual work in the human heart. Uh, and yet, what we see is that individual Christians are, are not to be alone. And we're, God places us into a family. This family here together. And like any family, it's on a spectrum of Dysfunction. Right, the family that he places us here with, the church family. You, your family might have the, the quirky uncle who shows up at Thanksgiving, right? And, and yet he's still family. Because every, every local church will have the, the quirky uncle, in a sense. And, and, and if you maybe can't think of anybody at UBC with that, either you haven't been here long enough or it's you, right? Right? Uh, <laughs> No, there, there, there's always just going to be, I mean, we're just, we're people, right? And, and, and there's sin that runs through us. There's, there's differences, there's personalities, and, and yet we're, we're placed in a family, in a local church. And notice when Paul confronts them here, and I think this is important, when he confronts them, And not just in this passage, but throughout the book, when there's big issues, he doesn't say, you guys are such a mess, you just need to disband. This place is too toxic, there's nothing that can be done here, you just need to split and just give up on this whole endeavor. No, no, he's he's correcting, he's he's praising, but he's saying, you're coming together, let's fix this, let's do this right. That ought to be a mindset that we have. Before he even lists off the, cause of their division, he he says something a little bit surprising. He says, "I, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it, for there must be, put your eyes on that in verse 19, there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. He gave four chapters at the beginning of 1 Corinthians that we saw in the fall, uh, warning about divisions, talking about the, the harm of divisions, trying to emphasize unity. And now he says something surprising. He says, there, there must be factions among you. I, I, your translation might even say, it is necessary. Why? It, his point, I think, there is, as he goes on to explain, that these factions, although painful, although division is resulting from sin, the, the Lord providentially uses that to reveal things about us and about our body even. And he says, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. There can be a positive outcome from this very negative thing that is division and fracturing in the body. And part of that positive outcome is it reveals what's going on in our hearts, reveals what we're valuing. It reveals why we're gathering. You know, we're gathering just for entertainment and pleasure and ease and to consume. Well, then... When something hard comes up, it might peel away. But if there's something more lasting binding us together, that can be revealed as well. You might recall the parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 of the tares or the weeds and the wheat. He tells the parable of a landowner who learns from his his servants that. An enemy has come and has spread weeds among the good wheat that he has sown. And as they're starting to grow up, there's this good wheat that they want to harvest and there's weeds mixed in. It was an act of sabotage. And they ask, what should we do? Should we, should we go through and pull out these weeds? And he says, no, because in so doing, you'll pull up the good stuff as well. You'll pull up the wheat as well. Uh, so leave it and at the harvest, we'll gather it in then and separate it out then. And he goes on to explain Essentially that that's going to be the church throughout all the ages. That as believers gather, there will be some within the gathering who, who don't know Christ. And perhaps they'll be self-deceived and won't realize that. Perhaps they'll know that, but, but it'll always be, be mixed in. And I think that's part of what Paul's emphasizing here. That divisions can have a way of exposing some of those things, as painful as they might be. So even before he corrects, he says, friends, as hard as this is, there may be a positive outcome yet that comes. But then he doesn't use that as an excuse to say, therefore, man, stir up the division, right? No, no. He says, this division still is not good. And he goes on and he explains what's happening. He says, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's supper. He says, you're not, that's not actually what you're doing. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. This is verse 21. And one is hungry and another drunk. And in my translation of this, he responds to that with the exclamation, What? What? How could you do this? What well, was supposed to be a communal activity. They were distorting. This activity that was to show their union with Christ and with each other. They were using it as an excuse, as an opportunity to eat and get full and even to get drunk, and some were being left out. Now, you might be reading that in picturing our, our little tiny cups and, and the little cracker, thinking, okay, even if that was wine, that would take a lot <laughs> to get drunk, and, and I'm not going to get really full on those crackers. Well, the early church, often what they practiced was a communal meal first. Uh, I think that's what Jude is referring to in Jude chapter 1, verse 12, when he calls it a, a love feast, a feast celebrating kind of their love for one another. And then at the end of that, they would, they would take communion And we tend to just focus on this this practice of communion itself, which is is fine. But often they had a a meal involved. And so then you could see how some would would come. Perhaps they were coming earlier. Some have speculated that it's perhaps a, a wealthier group within the Corinthians who didn't have to wait for their work day to get over and they could come early and they had more money and they were gathering in some part and they were getting full. But those who have nothing, which is what he says in verse 22, he refers to them as those who have nothing or are being left out. So that could be it. Whatever it is, there's this division that's happening, a misuse of this meal. So that rather than being a picture of unity, it was very visibly a picture of division. Then he moves, though, into an explanation of the Lord's Supper. And month after month, this is typically the passage we read. Uh, Churches have throughout the the centuries, so you're likely familiar with these words if you've been here on one of those Sundays. And yet, it's helpful to see the surrounding context, that it's not just dropped in so we have something to read when we take communion. It's addressing a very real problem by giving the, the purpose of this meal and the significance of it. So from this distortion, I want to move now to this purpose that he gives, the the purpose of the Lord's Supper. They were distorting it, and so he comes back to what it was really for. Notice that he begins with that word for. It shows that he is in response, in correction to what they were doing wrong. says for, I want you to know, this this is what it's really about. It says, I delivered to you, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. These words, received and delivered, are actually kind of technical terms that would have been used in his Jewish upbringing for receiving and passing on instruction. This continual pattern of receiving and passing it on. And he says, that's what I'm doing. I've, I've received this and I'm passing it on. And it's likely that what he's sharing here was a description that was already in use in the early church, uh, to remember time after time when they took communion what it was all about. And he says, I received this and I delivered it to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was to betrayed, took bread. To remind you of the, the scene in which that was happening initially, this night that he was betrayed, this night that he took bread, it was at a Passover meal with his disciples. He knew his death was coming, he was not surprised, he was not shocked. He gathers his disciples for a a Passover meal. So this would have been a meal that now for centuries the Jewish people were celebrating year after year. And in many ways it pictures and foreshadows this new meal, this Lord's Supper that he was going to implement that night. You think about the Passover meal and what that communicated we can read about it in Exodus 12, throughout the whole of, of Exodus 12. But to, to summarize it, it was as the Lord was going to bring his people out of slavery, out of bondage in Egypt, and he had them take a lamb and sacrifice and take the blood of the lamb and mark the doorposts of their home. And the angel of the Lord would come through and he would pass over those homes and spare their lives, and take the firstborn out of all the Egyptian homes. And it was this final act of judgment. After giving the Egyptians ten opportunities to do the right thing and let them go, he, he ramped this up on this tenth time, this, this judgment. and So they would finally let the people go. But he, but he passed over the homes that had put the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And so he told them that year after year... They are to celebrate this, and they are to, to eat this lamb roasted. They are to eat unleavened bread. It's a reminder that they did not have time to have the bread rise, and they needed to, to, to flee. They are to eat it with bitter herbs, and these are all loaded with some various significance for them. And they were told to do this continually, year after year, after describing this meal Exodus 12, verse 14, it says, Now this day will be a memorial to you. Think about that word when we talk about communion. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. He says, This is to be a memorial. This meal is not just a meal, it's a meal that reminds, that would remind the Israelites year after year that God had rescued them, brought them out of slavery. A little later in Exodus 12, again, it says, And you shall observe this event as an ordinance for, your, for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this rite. And when your children say to you, what does this rite mean to you? You shall say, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes the people bow down and worship. Notice, it's assuming that children are going to be watching this year after year. And every year, it'll be a chance to explain to them what the Lord has done. It's kind of skipping ahead a little bit. But, but isn't that a great benefit of communion as well? You have children sitting with you. And they're seeing you drink the cup. And they're probably thinking, especially when they're young, man, yeah, I really want to drink that, you know? I like juice. They're, they're maybe not familiar with what's going on, but they're seeing And they can't help but ask, why why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? And it's a chance to explain the gospel time after time. So it is a memorial that they were doing. Memorial of God's deliverance. And so 14 centuries later, Jesus is doing this with his disciples. They're calling together, remembering God's act of deliverance. And so during this meal that celebrated God's deliverance from slavery, he gives them a new meal that celebrates a greater deliverance. Not, not from Egypt, but from sin. And so he repurposes this to teach about this greater deliverance. He tells them, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It's not literally his body. I mean, he's still sitting there with them. He says, this is in remembrance of me. But just as the Passover meal was an ongoing memorial, he says, so this, you will remember me as you do this. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which likewise, I think, points back to language that Moses had used when he's enacting what we call the Mosaic covenant between God and the people. And as they've worked through this covenant relationship that they will have in Exodus 24 verses 5 to 8 I want you to notice the way this is described it says he sent young men of uh, the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as a peace offering to the Lord as in Exodus 24 starting in verse 5 Moses took half the blood and put it in bases, basins the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people and they said All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And they were anticipating, as the Old Testament unfolds, a promise of a new covenant that would come. And so Jesus takes this cup and he says, This cup is the the new covenant in my blood. Picturing his death. So as often as we drink it, it doesn't say how often, but as often as we do it, whether it's daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, there's different decisions, and there's a place for wisdom there. But as often as we partake it, it says we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He doesn't die again each time. It's not a re-sacrifice, but we're proclaiming his death. So can you see then how they were misusing it? If they took this thing that was to be a memorial meal, a remembrance of his death, a solemn occasion. And and also, just as all the Israelites, they took the Passover meal in their own homes, but it was an identifying thing together. They were delivered together. They were taking this meal together. It was a picture of their unity as a people rescued by God. So believers, we're to take communion as a picture of our unity together as a people rescued from God. And they... Decided this would be a great time to just stuff their bellies. Drink too much. Yeah, there's some people that then aren't going to be able to eat. They they should have gotten here earlier, you know. Or um, They're just distorting it. They're distorting it. So then he moves to a section on preparing. Preparing for the Lord's Supper. And I think this is where we can start to see some particular applications for for us individually. We're warned here. He warns them, but this warning persists. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. We're warned against eating or drinking in an unworthy manner. I want you to notice, it's not about unworthy people. If it were, then none of us could eat or drink. Right? If it has to do with our own worthiness as people, there's sin that runs through each of us and it shows up consistently. But it's about an unworthy manner. We can't think that, well, I can't take communion this Sunday because I lost my temper last night or I messed up a few days ago or I've been really grumpy or I just, I just feel like such a failure. I'm not worthy It's not about whether we deserve to approach the Lord with the Lord's table. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so if you're a sinner, you you qualify. But there can be an unworthy manner. We can do so unworthily. And in the context, what's the most obvious way in which we could do that? If there's unrepentant, unresolved division in the body... Which you're unwilling to move toward reconciliation and are fostering division, that would be an application. I think you could expand that out though to any just unrepentant heart that wants to go through the motions, maybe to satisfy a guilty conscience, maybe because everybody around you is, maybe because that you don't want people to see you passing over it, but you don't really want to repent or change author named Stephen, Um. he explains it this way, and I think it's helpful. There's a question of whether one is approaching with indifference or an unrepentant heart. Paul is calling the Christians to examine themselves, not to find reasons they are unworthy, but to find evidence of a repentant heart, evidence that grace is at work. If a believer has a repentant heart, he or she should be coming to the table. The only time Christians should refrain from the table is when they find hardened, apathy within themselves about their relationship with God and or others. That phrase, hardened apathy, has just stuck with me since I read it. It, it. It's not, I look back and I see, man, I messed up this week here and here and here, so I'm not worthy, but it's, I don't care. I don't care what God says. I know, I've, I know I'm sinning in this particular area, at least the Bible would say that, but I don't really care, and that, that would be a hardened apathy. And if we see that in our own hearts, it must be confessed. It must be repented of in itself. And if we're unwilling to do that, it would be dangerous to come to the Lord's Supper. says, so when we do that, we dishonor his sacrifice. We shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And I think what that means is we're, we're, we're failing to esteem and recognize his sacrifice. We're treating it as an insignificant thing, and we're more concerned about our own desires and pleasures. So the solution, he says, is to examine ourselves. Verse 28, a man must examine himself. Not examine everybody else. Examine himself. and so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. The body there could be the body of Christ not seeing the significance of this that would fit in the context treating it lightly it could be the body is in the church that would also fit the context right you're saying you're failing to judge the body discern the body rightly either one could fit I think it's probably talking about Jesus' sacrifice as as a way to point to that but the other could fit as well and so we examine ourselves we think am I just going through the motions here Do I really believe? I'm really trusting Christ? Is there a hardened apathy, which I'm just unwilling to turn from something that that I know the Lord views as sin? If not, we should should pause. We should, of course, repent of that and then come. But if we're not willing to repent of that, it would be dangerous to come. Because there is a shocking statement in here about drinking judgment to yourself. And verse 30, he says, For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Verse 32 refers to this as being disciplined by the Lord. It says he treats this so seriously, friends, that to come in an unworthy manner, d- diminishing the sacrifice, treating it as a light thing, unwilling to do the hard work, the Lord made discipline. And it even could include physical suffering as he's trying to get our attention. That should sober us. And that shows why it's, Examining your own heart, not examining others, because we don't know the inner working there. It's not something that's obvious, but it says there's an inner working there, of a hardened apathy that we must take seriously. And so the end ends in verses 33 to 34 by returning to the original problem and offering a simple solution. It says when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you will not come together for judgment. implies there's some other things that he'll arrange when he comes. So he gives a specific solution to their specific problem. He says, just wait. Don't don't divide over this. Eat at home. But what about for us? I'm going to wrap it up with this question. Where should we look when we take the Lord's Supper? And this isn't a formulation that's unique to me. Actually, I've seen several different authors use this. I'm not really sure who to credit it to then because of that. But I'm going to give you kind of a six-fold answer that I think is based on this passage for where should our attention go? Where should we look as we take communion? We should look back. Of course, we should remember what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We do this, he says, in remembrance of me. We take the the bread, symbolize his body given for us. We take the cup, his blood shed for us, remembering that we can be guilty of putting everything else on center stage of a church. Making church about marriage improvement, parenting strategies, growing numbers, growing budgets, getting out of debt personally or, or as a church, uh, integrating new people, perfecting the sound, having excellent worship. We can focus on all these other things that deserve some attention that we lose track of the main thing. And communion ought to make us remember the main thing. We have a God who humbled himself. The second person of the Trinity took on humanity, did not shed his deity, but took on humanity and came and literally died. It's not a figurative thing. He literally died and he came back from the dead. And this meal looks back at that. And it gives us an opportunity to reflect on that time after time. So, We look back, but we also look in. Examine your heart for hardened apathy, especially towards other Christians. If this is a passage dealing with horizontal division, it makes sense to give some emphasis there. That as you are reflecting, thinking, is there a hardness towards somebody else? Is there a division that is stirring up within the body and within my own heart and life? Not an extended, morbid introspection, but an honest grace-empowered reflection on the state of your own heart. Praying even along the lines of Psalm 139 that we began the service with or began at least the, the preaching time of, Lord, search me. Search me and know my heart. Are you weary? Come. Come to the table. Does he expose sin? Come to the table. But be willing to do that work. On the other hand, are you going through the motions, but you don't yet believe? You have not trusted in Christ? Then don't come. Better yet, believe and then come. Right? Or do you see a hardened apathy, an unrepentant sin that you're not willing to let go of? Don't come. Don't come to the table. Deal with that. Repent and, and come. And by deal with that, I don't mean get everything all cleaned up and fixed in your life, but I mean acknowledge it for what it is as sin and, and come and find grace. So we look back, we look in, we look up. We celebrate our union with Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 16. So a chapter ago, you might have remembered, we had a little mini reminder about communion there. And they have this statement there is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ. Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ. There's a sharing. Not that it's a magical act or something like that, but in this practice where we are doing this very thing that Jesus commanded 2,000 years ago we're enjoying a particularly intimate time of fellowship with him we look up we look around celebrate your union with each other as one body in Christ it's not just a vertical thing although it's first a vertical thing between us and the Lord but, but there's a horizontal aspect because that's what they were shattering with the way they were practicing it. And so, as we take communion, we're remembering again our unity with each other that we who are many are, are one in Jesus. Many different ages, many struggles, many stories, many languages, many national backgrounds, many interests, and yet we are one. And it's important to get down to like real people with this. And you guys have probably heard the it's like a cliche poem. You probably you 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 might have heard it where it says, to live above with saints we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. And and I think there's kind of a timeless chuckle that comes along with that, because we know that. We know, yes, ah, union of saints, I'm with other believers. These ones? Because like, <laughs> like, we, we see each other. You guys see me. You see my, flaw, my flaws. You know, we, we see that with each other. And, and yet this is a unity that crosses over those things because it's a unity in Christ. So we look around and we remember our unity with each other. We look out or we look outward. This is a proclaiming thing. Chapter 11, verse 26 says, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if somebody who comes... And they're not a Christian and we want them to come and they see this thing that believers are doing that might seem kind of weird to them. But it's an opportunity to, to proclaim that we gather because of a sacrificed Messiah. And we are trusting in him. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is a great opportunity for you to consider what objections do you have? What questions do you have? Do, do, you, do you recognize Sin in your own heart, meaning a disobedience against God, the Creator, Have you heard that Jesus died for you, and that this meal pictures that, and the response is to believe to to repent from the sin that made it necessary and to believe and then one more, we look forward, we anticipate that Jesus is coming back, and as we proclaim the lord 's death. Until he comes. The Passover anticipated the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper anticipates what we call the marriage supper of the Lamb. One day we will be with him. He will come. We will go be with him. It will be a great meal. We're still looking ahead to that. And every time we take communion, we're remembering that he's going to come again. And we're looking ahead to that day.